This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, International Women's Day with a focus on business and leadership. And York Region students learn about the history, perspective, and cultures of Indigenous peoples. But we begin with the war in Ukraine. The world is watching in absolute horror what's unfolding in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of the sovereign nation began almost two weeks ago. The destruction is gut-wrenching. The mounting number of casualties is devastating. And the need for humanitarian aid is growing by the minute. Here in our country, the Humanitarian Coalition has brought together 12 leading aid organizations to provide Canadians with an effective way to raise funds in order to rush assistance to the people of Ukraine. Joining us now to talk about the Humanitarian Coalition is its Executive Director, Richard Morgan. Thanks for being with us on the feed. Thank you so much for having us today, Anne. Can you describe what the Humanitarian Coalition is and stands for? Sure. The Humanitarian Coalition brings together 12 of Canada's leading international development agencies. We've been working together as, as a group since the early 2000s, um, and uh, many Canadians would recognize our members, which include... Uh, for example, CARE, Oxfam, Plan, Save the Children, World Vision, and a number of others. And why a coalition? Why bring together such strong charities? It's important when we're responding to humanitarian disasters that we that we coordinate. So our work in the field is coordinated to make sure we avoid duplication and ensure the maximum impact of the aid. And it's similarly important in Canada that we make it easy for Canadians to respond knowing they've got some trusted groups working together to also reduce costs and focus uh, our assistance. And that assistance, obviously, is so important at this point. So are donations, and we're hoping Canadians will continue to donate uh, to the charities that they trust and to the Humanitarian Coalition, where there are 12 uh, assistance uh, organizations. But the actual delivery of assistance, of humanitarian aid, in a situation like Ukraine, how does that take place, Richard? It's definitely challenging, uh, and the situation on the ground is both fluid and volatile. We have existing uh, member partnerships in inside Ukraine that have uh, managed to continue providing aid during the uh, escalation of conflict, and we're also responding to the needs of the well close to 677,000 people who have fled to uh, to neighboring neighboring countries, and so we're responding uh, not only in Ukraine but also in, in the bordering regions in Moldova, Poland. Romania, Lithuania, Hungary, and Slovakia. Let's talk about the various uh, agencies that are a part of this and what they can give. So, for instance, Canadian Food Grains Bank, how are they able to assist? Food Grains Bank actually brings together on its own uh, 15 uh, church agencies, and they do have a focus on, on food aid, but they also provide a, a range of responses. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, church-based organizations are present in many parts of the world uh, throughout the Ukraine and in the bordering regions. So they're able to mobilize both in terms of their central network as well as to leverage the local presence of their, uh, of their communities. And Doctors of the World? Yes, Doctors of the World has been working in Ukraine since, oh gosh, well, at least since 2015 that I can think of. Um, and they've, they have both mobile clinics as well as support to institutional facilities. Uh, so, for example, I think since 2015, they've been able to, to provide about 125,000 
consultations and support to individuals. Save the children. Everyone very concerned about children when there's ever any sense of conflict or 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 war. And that certainly is the situation in Ukraine right now. Save the children. What can they do to help? Yeah, Save the Children has been active and is probably one of our most active agencies in uh, inside Ukraine. And they've been working uh, there for quite some time, providing a range of support in terms of access to education. Uh, right now, as you can imagine, it's the winter there, just as it is here. So displaced people are in need of support in terms of winter kits, hygiene kits. Um, all of our agencies are responding both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine with uh, psychosocial support. You can imagine the trauma that many of these families and children have experienced. Many of them have been separated and you've seen the painful images of, of parents having to embrace their children and leave them at the border. Uh, so a, a whole range across uh, across those needs are, are being uh, are being provided. Uh, and including cash grant programming, where the markets are still functioning, sometimes providing people with the cash to make the decisions that they need uh, to meet their, their individual needs is, is the most dignified and uh, effective way of providing help. Does each of these agencies have someone on the ground or a team on the ground in Ukraine right now? We work both in terms of direct uh, direct presence, so in the case of, say, the children, for example, a direct country office or Doctors of the World. Uh, in the case of other member agencies, we work through networks and federations. Um, so it's our networks that are ne- that enable us to have the global reach uh, to respond in times of crisis where, whenever these emergencies occur. So there must be people in the war zone, and, and it's expanding in Ukraine every hour. What are they telling you? What are you hearing from the aid workers who are there trying to help and trying to make a difference? Well, in the immediate, depending on on where the conflict is at, sometimes it's sheltering in place uh, just to ensure the immediate safety of the teams able to respond. And then as the conflict moves on or as as the shelling stops, they can then resume operations. Um, But but many of them are, are, are themselves also, you know, struggling to provide support to others while they're also traumatized by the, by the shelling, by the fighting, um, one of our colleagues, uh, who's the SAVE director of Eastern Europe, said, you know, there's no safe place in Ukraine right now, mm-hmm. and the situation is changing by the hour. So you can imagine what, uh, what, that would, uh, what that would do to people in terms of their ability to, to keep carrying on. They're, they're showing tremendous courage and resilience. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about uh, the people of Ukraine who are, are uh, whether they have decided to stay put and fight uh, or whether they just cannot uh, flee the country. But you also think about the aid agency workers, you're right, on the ground. It's, it's got to be very precarious. How do you keep them safe? Well, both in terms of um, established protocols and, and, and uh, um, safe houses where, uh, where those can be established. Uh, I mean, for example, the, the fighting has been going on in the eastern part of Ukraine since 2014. And so people have had to work on both sides of the conflict line. Uh, so this isn't a, you know, I guess the practice of of, uh, of safe uh, safety humanitarian response has, has been uh, underway for many years. It's just the, the pace of escalation in this case has, uh, has made it so much more challenging. Richard, what is needed most now? What are you looking for in terms of donations? What will that money buy in order to supply to the people of Ukraine? A great question, Anne. So uh, you, you can imagine uh, with the number of people fleeing, at, like at the moment, it's almost like half the population of York Region, 677,000 have had to flee uh, outside the country. And there's 100,000 people a day are, uh, are crossing borders. So they're arriving in, in either internally displaced or outside the country in, uh, in welcome centers. They need food, water, 
hygiene products, uh, basic items, medication and injury care, and as we said, mental health care uh, to deal with the trauma. So all those things are, are critically important. And what we would say is that Canadians can help most effectively by enabling us to provide them quickly with with uh, with uh, those supplies and, and cash is the best way to do so. Um, in terms of how quickly we can mobilize aid, it's much faster to provide cash uh, into the network to to provide those those goods locally as much as possible, um, rather than sort of packing up goods and sending them. And time is of the essence. So, how will people who would like to donate? How do they do that? Where do they go? Thanks so much, Anne. Yeah, we, we would encourage anyone who is moved to support to the people of Ukraine, either inside Ukraine or in the bordering regions, by going online to our website. So it's www.together.ca. That's together.ca. Or you can also call our one eight um, uh, our toll free number one eight five five four six one two one five four. So that's one eight five five four six one two one five four, or at together.ca. Richard Morgan, Executive Director of the Humanitarian Coalition, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne, for having us on your program and for bringing attention to this important crisis. Here at home, through every waking moment, Varvara Shmagalova wonders if her beloved family still in Ukraine has survived another day of rocket fire, air assaults, missile strikes, and shelling. Are they still alive? Varvara is our guest on the feed right now. Thank you, Varvara, so much for agreeing to speak with us. Thank you, Anne. It's uh, my pleasure and my honor, too. Varvara, who is still in Ukraine. Who of your family is still in Kyiv? Um, so all of my family is still in Ukraine uh, and uh, my um, two grandmas and granddad, my mom and my dad and my stepdad and uh, three of my brothers are uh, still uh, in Kyiv. You spoke with your father today. What did he tell you? Uh, yeah, I was really fortunate to um, be able to speak to him. I wasn't able to reach out for uh, two previous days. Um, they're holding up. The spirits are strong, but uh, physically they are exhausted. My father in his mid-50s, and, uh, you know, it's been a week, and they can't really sleep. And if they sleep, they sleep on the cold floor in the shelters. Um, it's also really cold still in Ukraine and kind of wet. So he's saying some people are getting, like, sick because of the weather and the conditions they're living in. Um, they're, uh, right now trying to defend Kiev as much as possible. They're a little bit trying out of people, but the weapons coming in and the food's coming in. So that's at least not a problem. Yeah. So they're, they're high in spirits, but we really need, um, help. And your father has decided to help in terms of the effort, the military effort, if you will, he has decided to take up arms. I know that the president has asked uh, all men in Ukraine of a certain age to stay behind and fight, but your father decided that he would volunteer to do that. How did that make you feel? It made me feel very proud of my dad. He's my hero, and um, I'm just, I just really pray and wish he's going to be alive and unwounded, but I totally understand why he did it, and I honor his decision because this is my land, this is my country, and honestly, I think they're right now fighting for the freedom of the entire world. This is a battle between a good and the evil, and the good has to prevail, so I'm super proud that my dad is on the good side. And was your father involved in any military action prior to this? Never. My Never. dad is 
like a it works in the financial sector. He's uh he's like going to the theater, like he's very like gentle soul. Yeah. He never had guns in his arms before. Yeah. Your mom, you haven't been able to reach her in at least thirty-six hours. What do you think is going on? My uh, hope is that because they are located um, like behind the city, not in the city itself, and there have been uh, very heavy battles for three days, including like airstrikes and troops on the ground really close to the, where they are located. Uh, my hope is that they just bomb the like networks and stuff like that. So that's why I'm not able to reach them because, you know, the opposite option is uh, too hard to imagine. So I just, uh, my, I'm trying not to go there. And let's talk about your grandparents. They're in their mid-80s. They're staying put. Why? Um, first thing, they are really old and um, they have a lot of health conditions. So evacuating from them from the city would be very hard from the beginning. My grandma wouldn't be able to sit in the car for that long. And in the beginning, the way to get out of the city and to the borders was taking like enormous amount of time. So they decided they will stay put. And they also just on a personal level decided that as kids, they've been already evacuated from Kiev during second world war. And they don't want to go through this again. They, they said to me that they live their life and they want to stay home. And if they will have to die, they just want to die in their mm-hmm. like home walls because that that's what they're going to do and I honor their decision the problematic thing is my grandma is actually sick and she's not well walk, walking well so she's been unable to go to the shelter or to the basement and uh, they're just staying in their apartment in, in the bathroom because that's like the safest place they go there whenever they hear the you know, airstrike sirens so that's super nerve wracking for me as well as you can imagine what do you say to them when you communicate with them? And, and I'm speaking specifically of your grandparents. I know that you are very close to them, and I know how much you love them and you're fearing for their lives. What is your communication like with them? Well, um, my goal is to keep their spirits up. So I'm calling them every day. At least I'm trying. Sometimes the lines are not working. But when I'm able to reach them, I'm just being super uplifting, telling them the entire world is fighting for you. You just need to hold up a little longer and the help is going to come. And uh, we're going to be okay because we, we can't lose. We, ha- we will lose everything and we can't let this happen. So we will, Ukraine will prevail and we will win this war. Uh, that's what I'm telling them. And are they aware, is your family aware of the response almost worldwide to this invasion by Vladimir Putin? There is, the the, the response almost universally has been one of, 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 ter- of just absolute disgust that this is happening. And the world is doing what it can at this point to to try to shut him down. Are your grandparents made aware of that? Yes, actually, um, in Ukraine, all the TV channels we had, um, they united now and they have a live uh, like TV uh, 24-7. They're just like changing the different people from different channels to come in. So people know what's happening. They're show- they showed protests from Toronto. They showed protests from London, Berlin. So Ukrainians are very well aware that the world is standing with us. We're super grateful for that because we wouldn't be able to do it on our own. And we're standing for a week right now. This is like a day. uh, They started on Thursday. 
um, and it's even more than a week, right? So um, I, everyone knows that the world stands with Ukraine. However, I just want to make the point that we need a little more action, not a little more. We need at least a no-fly zone. That's the main demand, and we're trying to communicate it through all the possible networks because they are bombing our cities, they're airstriking our cities, and people are dying, and there's no way we can stop them. And the only way we can protect our sky is with the help of our uh, partners with other nations. And I know that people stand with us. I know because I live in Toronto and I talk to Canadians and every single person I've encountered through this days are super supportive. They're very kind. And I know that on the people, on the personal level, everyone supports Ukraine. It's just the diplomacy kind of things and the bureaucracy. And this is not the time for this. This is the time to be united and to fight together, and I understand we're not asking for the troops, we're just asking to protect our skies, and if we will have our skies protected on the ground, our army and our volunteers, including my dad, would be able to save Ukraine and protect our land and save the world, and the good world to prevail. So we really ask to please protest, please write in, on your social media, go to embassies, write to your MPs, do everything possible to protect our skies. Thank you. Very well put. Vavara Shmagalova, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Just heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, but also really inspirational as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to help, please do. Contact the Humanitarian Coalition at together.ca or the Red Cross at redcross.ca. We'll be right back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Our next couple of stories focus on women in leadership and business. Tina Cortez with a look ahead to International Women's Day. Tina Collins is an executive coach and joins the feed today to discuss how corporate Canada measures up when it comes to women in leadership roles. Welcome to the show, Tina. Thank you so much. Let's start with you telling us about your work as an executive coach. Well, I have the uh, distinct privilege of supporting executives and their teams in creating workplaces that are happy and prosperous. Um, I believe that, you know, since we spend so much of our lives going to work, that we should love it. We should enjoy it. And, and And I understand that that's not possible on a daily basis, but I think, you know, for the most part, Um, we could definitely uh, increase how much we enjoy going to work. So that's what I do. Okay, so creating a happy and prosperous workplace sounds idyllic, but can it really exist? Well, I've done it. (laughs) I've helped quite a few organizations create uh, cultures that lean towards joy and passion and fulfillment um, rather than, you know, frustration and angst and the bottom line. So it's absolutely possible. And obviously, it's a process. Could you share a few of those tips with us? You bet. Um, So the process of coaching um, entails both one-on-one coaching and team 
group coaching in the sense that we learn to understand who we are, how we show up, and then we leverage that with our colleagues and our team so that we can do more. Now, obviously, coaching has changed, especially over the pandemic. How have you had to pivot your own business? Well, the majority of the pivoting actually happened at home. Um, Much like the rest of the world, you know, instead of traveling the world to be on site, um, I was at home in my office doing virtual work. And so my practice changed quite dramatically because instead of traveling, I basically just, you know, parked myself in front of my desk and uh, cracked open my Zoom and had sessions all day long. How is Corporate Canada doing in terms of promoting women in leadership roles? Well, I think every year we, Corporate Canada, uh, does a much better job at promoting women inside of organizations. I think the fact that they're um, now awake to uh, the, the benefits of having women on their team has significantly changed the landscape of the boardroom. And are there advancements being made by women? Are women excelling in leadership roles? I I think that women are killing it, actually, in leadership roles. I think the biggest advancement that we we have experienced, um, even from just 20 years ago, is that, you know, we still have a lot of women uh, in the workplace, but what's changed is how they show up, Um, you know, about 20 years ago, even that, that sooner, maybe even less than that, women were having to mimic men. And so, they're, you know, in terms of uh, communication styles, um, their, you know, how they dressed, how they presented themselves. And now, women can be much more authentic to themselves, which is an absolute gift to everyone. Absolutely. So true. I mean, you and I were talking offline about how not that long ago, 20 years ago, it was very different for women in business. What are your thoughts then for young women right now entering the workforce? I think women, uh, the, the younger generation, have so many opportunities to flex an entirely new set of skills. You know, their communication, their openness, their collaboration, a lot of it is their levity, their humor. I I see so much joy and passion in young women, and I also see a lot of activism and and justice. And I think those are all really passionate subjects that uh, all organizations are going to benefit from. And do you have some examples, perhaps, you know, for those young women who are listening, of women who have succeeded and and do well uh, in the corporate boardroom? Well, just last week, uh, I was watching the news, and our prime minister was delivering a message. And just behind him were three individuals waiting their turn to speak. And it, I, I couldn't ignore the fact that they were all women. And each of them spoke intelligently, with passion and integrity. I was so incredibly impressed and proud to be Canadian. Another really great example um, which I think they could probably relate to, young people can relate to, is Marie-Philippe Poulain, the captain of Team Canada's uh, women's hockey. Um, you know, she was very vocal and about how 
she worked with her team collaboratively to leverage their strengths. Um, and in doing so, they brought home the gold. It was such an amazing game to watch. It really was. I enjoyed that one for sure. What is your message then as we approach International Women's Day? My, my message for women is to, you know, get out of the shadow and self-promote. Um, to ask for the things that they want from their employer, whether it's a promotion or a pay raise. Um, and, and probably the most important thing is to not wait for things to be perfect in order to do something. So just get out of your own way. Just get out of your own way. Just do the thing, take some risks, have some fun, um, and, and you know, be authentic. If our listeners want to contact you, Tina, how can they do that? They can visit me on my website at tina.collins.ca. In a new report, women in Canada and the U.S. have remained active and resilient, navigating the unprecedented business, work, family demands sparked by COVID-19. Ginger Sloan launched her first business, at 10 years of age, and she hasn't stopped. Ginger, you have been described as a serial entrepreneur. How did that lead you to empowering and inspiring other women in business? Well, I would say first and foremost, um, a lot of very expensive lessons learned. (laughs) (laughs) And and, 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 because serial generally means more than one, right? Absolutely. And I'm I'm a firm believer in being an entrepreneur, that you're not truly able to wear that badge of honor until you fail. And in life, I've learned, we don't learn through the good times. When things feel good and are going our way and we're successful, we're not learning anything except how to live in a state of happiness, right? When things get hard and you fail at something, that's when you learn. And that's when you learn what you're good at and what you're not good at. And that's part, in my opinion, of being a a true serial entrepreneur. You know, back in 2013, I had two very successful businesses, uh, both in the service industry. So I like to say that that is one of my strong points, is communicating and and serving my clients. Um, um, But I I thought I would be adventurous and get get outside of, of my core and try a couple of the other industries because I thought, you know, what you're, you've been so success, successful, you can't fail. You'll, you'll be fine. Just have good people in place and you'll be fine. And that absolutely was not the case. Mm-hmm. And so I learned some very, very expensive lessons. And then you learn how to recover from that. And, and, and it was in those times that that took a couple of years. Don't get me wrong. That bounce back was not, it was not, um, it did not come without some pain. And it was during that time I learned how to not take myself so seriously and to be able to tell other female entrepreneurs, women business owners that do not be fooled. Those times will come. And when they come, you need to not make a permanent decision for a temporary circumstance. And that's what I had to learn, to, to just sit and breathe and, and be sure and analyze what was going on um, because this too shall pass. And, and so I, I now look back and I'm very grateful 
I'm very thankful for those those hard lessons I learned because in life, and this is where I personally am at now, you get to a point where you want to do well by doing good. And, and that's a really serious statement. Like everyone needs to live and, and as an entrepreneur, your goal is to, you know, generate revenue, be able to employ others, um, grow your business. But you get to a point where giving back just becomes a, a true passion. And that's where I'm at. Like I want other women in business to learn from those mistakes that I paid such a heavy price at. And, and I just don't want it to be for nothing. Why is there an increase, do you think, in female-owned businesses and female-founded startups? Well, primarily, I think in the last couple of years, it's going to be from the opportunity that was born out of um, our the pandemic where, where we went through and, and, and to some effect we're still going through. You know, since the early 2000s, female-owned businesses have increased by 54%. And so right now, we currently have in the U.S. 12.3 million uh, businesses owned by females. And a good portion of those have just been in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of that is because females had to come home, right? Had to be work at home, whether it's for your, your regular job or whatever it is your career field was. Due to the pandemic, we found ourselves at home. We became educators of our children, um, housekeepers, uh, in, in still doing our career. And then we figured out how to do that efficiently. And then we had this time on our hands that through online, through the internet, we were able to figure out how to create a side hustle, right? Mm -hmm. Something that we enjoyed doing that made more, made money, made extra revenue for the household. And I believe over the course of the last couple of years, females have figured out how to make that side hustle their main career. And you see now that, you know, one in four women did not go back to work, not at the jobs they left from or they went home with during the pandemic. So, and I, and I believe that because the internet is so accessible with online businesses, with a relatively low cost to entry, it allows more women who maybe had that entrepreneurial spirit, but didn't have, you know, believe they didn't have the means or the startup cost or whatever it might be, they were afforded this opportunity through the pandemic and they took it. And 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 it's and it's it's worked out well for them, and you can tell by the numbers. Mm-hmm. So, women entrepreneurs have found a way to thrive. But what do you think the future looks like for women-led businesses this year and beyond? I think it looks very, very promising. Right now, it is expected over the next two generations that women will control seventy percent of the world's wealth in the U.S. alone. Women control 85% of all purchasing, all spending. That's over $7 trillion a year in the U.S. is controlled by females. Uh, $20 trillion worldwide. I think the outlook is one of, of great expectations and positivity. And I also believe that if, you know, like anything else, knowledge is power, right? Education. I believe if women only realize Women in business only realize the power they have at their fingertips in, in regard to uh, revenue, both here and abroad. 
And if we would only understand that if we backed women-owned businesses, women-led businesses with our spending, we would see those numbers. they They would be unstoppable. Hear, hear. What is your message then as we prepare to mark International Women's Day on Tuesday? I'll tell you my message. It's just what I just said. Mm -hmm. There is a gap. There is a gap in understanding the power that women hold economically and leadership roles in in corporations. And I I back that up by saying this. Currently, um, only 5.46% of S&P corporations have female CEOs. And only roughly 21% of them are females that hold board seats. If we would economically um, benefit companies through, through additional revenue that truly authentically empowered female equality in their leadership, I think we would see we would see a change. We would see those numbers move up. So for me, this International Women's Day, I really plan on really pushing Purse Power. Purse Power is um, it's an organization, a nonprofit, PursePower.com, that actually has a a women-owned, women-led businesses network of over seven hundred and fifty-eight thousand females. There's nothing like that out there. To where, again, what I just said to you a while ago, if we, on this International Women's Day, if we would only support other women um, and make that a conscious effort, I, I think that would be a turning point. It would be incredible. So so that's what I would like to really speak about and to, um, you know, help other women with um, right now is get involved, get be a part of an organization organization like Purse Power, be a part of an organization that mentors other women-owned businesses um, so that we can all band together and, and see in, you know, a couple years' time, what, how do those numbers get different? How might we all be bettered? And because when, the truth is when females are bettered, their families are, their community is, their state, the nation, when females do well, we are the heart and soul of this economy. Ginger Sloan, if our listeners want to contact you or learn more about you, how can they do that? Um, just feel free to reach out to me, um, ginger at gingersloan.com. Terrific. Thanks for your time. All right. You have a great day. It was a pleasure speaking with you. When we come back, the study of Indigenous literature. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang is next with the new required course coming to York Region High Schools. All right, beginning in the 2023-2024 calendar school year, all students in York Region District school boards will take a course called Understanding Contemporary First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Voices as a required grade 11 English credit. I think this is a fantastic initiative. To talk more about it, the coordinator of the program, Andrew McConnell, joins us on the feed. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jim. Thank you. This is is a necessary step, I believe. What brought you and the 
staff at York Region District School Board to think this is something that we need going forward for kids in grade 11 in their matriculation in the curriculum? Well, we've been actually talking about this since 2019. It's one of those, you know, ongoing topics we go back and forth on, which is, you know, how do we make, you know, what is Indigenous content, Indigenous curriculum? How do you make it understandable to, you know, who are the next, the next uh, generation of adults um, who are coming up, you know, who are charged with looking after? And, and this course in particular, where it's placed within the curriculum, the fact that it's grade 11, it's coming after, you know, all of their, their history courses are done. You know, there's a lot of discussion about community history in 7, 8, and grade 10. Um, but this is the moment where the kids, the students, these young adults are really well prepared to start to take on these um, subject matters and understandings. And certainly for a lot of teachers in school who didn't have this teaching themselves, um, it, it, you, know, you run into this difficulty, right? How do I communicate understandings and ideas about what it is to be Indigenous in Canada? And, and this course really solves a lot of those issues in that, you know, you're allowing the students to engage with contemporary Indigenous writers from all across Canada, talking about things that the kids will also recognize as contemporary to themselves, and just being able to see it viewed through the eyes of different Indigenous characters, Indigenous writers, and different Indigenous ways of, you know, speaking and talking to these subjects. Um, it, it just, it fit in as the right thing to do. It's just, it's taken us this long to get it all sort of set up so that we can do it. Well, Andrew, I think the timing is wonderful. With all the things that were happening with the discovery, the gruesome discoveries of the residential schools, my wife and I looked at each other going, how come we never were taught anything about this in school? We don't remember ever being taught about residential schools in, while we were going through you know, elementary and high school. So I think to have the next few generations get, be taught this, learn about this, it makes Canada a better place, Andrew. Well, and it, it definitely, I mean, if you think about it, like for myself, I'm Nishnabe. I grew up down here and I literally grew up in Brampton. I now teach and work in, in York District School Board. Um, you know, growing up at home, you know what it is to be Indigenous. It's part of your family. It's part of the things that we do. Uh, but certainly never was able to experience it at school. And, and it, it just seems strange that, you know, you can grow up in your homeland. You can grow up where you come from, where your ancestors come from, where all your family lives and not actually see yourself reflected in anything within school. So, you know, it's, it's been a long process, right? You know, I, I gotta say I'm getting on in years, uh, but to see it finally happening, you know, and it is 2022, you know, we're going to move into 2023. Um, to see it finally happening is a good thing. And, and also to think that contemporary students, this is always the biggest thing for me when I was growing up, is I wound up having to be this voice of Indigenous folks for everybody I was living with, right, who wasn't Indigenous. And to think that, you know, now, you know, a, an Indigenous student on our school board can sit in the same class as somebody who's not Indigenous and be able to engage in these texts and talk about what it is in reality for them as well. Um, and then also, you know, what makes a good story, right? Because there's that other piece too. It is an English course, right? It is an opportunity to explore literature and how we tell stories and how stories help us come to understand each other as human beings, right? Like, it's 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 about time, I guess, is, is really what it comes down to, as you said, right? I wish this had been there for myself, um, but I'm happy to see it happening for the kids now. And Andrew, I, I think about this, that you know, people think, well, Canada, we became a nation in 1867. We were settled in the 1600s. But the indigenous Canadians, the, the the Inuit, their history goes back a millennium, way before that. I mean, the history of Canada is so deep, and this is a way to open the students' eyes to the deep history of Canada before European settlers arrived. 
and even to see how those things move forward in a straight line into today. I mean, I think so many Canadians don't even really realize how much, you know, their culture is influenced by the various Indigenous communities they're coming to contact with. Um, you know, just even right down to the words that are on the land, right? How many people understand that, you know, like Canada is, it's a Mohawk word, right? Yeah. Ontario is a Mohawk word. Toronto is a Mohawk word. Yeah, Etobicoke is Nishnabe. Spadina is Nishnabe. Michigan, you know, Wisconsin, these are all Nishnabe words. Um, to be able to have that understanding of just how we've influenced each other's culture is, is a big deal. Speaking with Andrew McConnell, the coordinator of the First Nations Métis Inuit Education that will be taking part for grade 11 English students in York Region District School Board in 2023-2024. Andrew, just to get a little bit of background on yourself, after high school, where did you go to university and how did your, I guess, your path to being a proud Indigenous Canadian take you to where you are today? Oh, well, I mean, when I graduated out of high school, I went to York University, and I, I have to say, I've seen things change a lot. Like, when I was there, we had the first, you know, Indigenous Student Association start. Like, it, it started the second year I was at school. There wasn't one prior to that, and hmm. certainly there weren't any Indigenous study courses that I could take at York. Whereas now I look at it, you know, we actually have professors who are Indigenous. We have master's programs that look at, um, you know, Indigenous education uh, specifically, uh, along with other areas of study. So it's really come a long way. I mean, for my own personal work, I, I was always Indigenous, always Anishinaabe. It's just, you know, how do you learn to work those two things together and really grow into your culture when you don't have a lot of people around you? Um, who you get to interact with who are also indigenous, but I've been lucky, right? You know, through my professional experience and then, you know, through my work as a teacher, I've been able to work with a lot of other indigenous teachers as well. And then a lot of really good allies, right? Like when we came to this decision at the board, it wasn't done by indigenous folks alone. It was done in conversation between indigenous educators, staff, and non-indigenous educators and staff, uh, and really looking at how we can move this forward. I mean, it's, and this really is a work in progress, right? You know, like I said, we talked about it in 2019, but then we had to start putting a lot of things in place for training, for developing understanding for teachers who are currently in this to, to really figure out what it is that they need in order to do the best work possible. I'm thinking also, Andrew, mainstream shows uh, like Yellowstone, uh, Outlander, and others who are really doing, they're trying their best to portray the Indigenous people in a really accurate light. Is that helping shine a light to a lot of people, both kids in high school and other people like, oh, this is, this is what an Indigenous person was like or is like now in 2022? I suppose it's a good try, but I think a lot of people need to recognize that, you know, television is fiction. Um, And so the same way that their own cultures are fictionalized, so are others. I am finding there's more depth in characters. Um, I have to say one of the shows we've been talking a lot about with uh, with educators is currently on Disney Plus, um, and that's uh, Reservation uh, Dogs, uh, which actually has three Canadian Indigenous actors on it, uh, even though it's supposed to be happening somewhere down in Oklahoma. Um, and they, they do sneak in little things that come out of uh, Ontario, specifically Indigenous communities, like there's words that they sneak in that, you know, you kind of chuckle at if, if you happen to know them, those sorts of things, and their references to stuff. But it is a move in the right direction. I mean, I am seeing things change around me, right? Like when I was a kid growing up around here, came down to Toronto all the time, you never saw anything that you would remote look, look at and say that's indigenous or even more specifically like that's Haudenosaunee or that's Anishinaabe. 
Um, and now I can see that, right? It, and it goes beyond the medicine wheel down at uh, City Hall, right? I see it on artwork on the side of buildings or all over the place. You know, there's a huge variety of things that you can see within communities and even, you know, to the names that are like, we're now renaming one of the schools um, and it's being you know, renamed Milky Bath. Uh, which is an Ojibwe word for let's work. Hmm. Um, and, and, and that, even that, that sense in itself of saying let's work really speaks to just even this idea of what is reconciliation, right? It's, it's something that we've got to do together and it's going to move us all forward in a good way. Um, there are changes afoot. It's just, we have to recognize that, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. This is the work of generations. It isn't the work of, you know, one year or two years, right? It's the work of one or two generations to the point where, you know, I think Canada starts to realize its potential as being a truly inclusive nation. Andrew, I applaud you and your efforts for you and your team to do this. It's going to make York Region and the province a much better place. Thank you so much for joining us and really educating us on a, hopefully a bright future for students in the region. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.